Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage. Hey, everyone. Have you been getting out much lately? Going out for long walks. Um, yeah, Toronto's starting to reopen again a little bit, but you still can't really... I don't know, do much. I mean, you can go into stores, but I feel like for social distancing, it's like if you go into most stores, you can't really social distance in there. So apart from groceries, I'm sort of like, I don't know, staying out of that stuff. It's also a pretty depressing experience to like go to Bulk Barn and have to wait in a line and then you can go into Bulk Barn and have somebody like pushing your cart for you and, and getting your Skittles out of the bowl for you. The, the, the whole experience of going out and shopping is is not fun yet. Yeah, I'm not I'm not really into it. So yeah, I mean, I actually actually am spending a lot of time outside. I mean, you know, obviously the gym's closed, so I have to like do cardio outside. I've been going for runs and stuff and like long walks. It's uh, it's pretty summery in Toronto now, I guess. Um, it feels, I don't know, a little less summery than normal because, you know, I feel like despite spending a lot of time outside, we're also all spending an inordinate amount of time indoors in a way that kind of sucks. I don't know. I, I've been watching a lot of movies and uh, playing video games again. I think the last sort of really big game I played was Red Dead Redemption 2. And I've been getting into this one called Sekiro Shadows Die Twice, which is a sort of shinobi game set in feudal Japan. And, you know, uh, it, you've probably never heard of it, but as soon as I tweeted about it once, there were so many people who'd clearly played it. This game came out just over a year ago, and it has you kind of sneaking around, trying not to be detected, getting into these like very elaborate fights with enemies. The combat is really difficult. This game is so hard that even the sort of grunt guys will kill you uh, like almost instantly if you don't deflect their attacks. And if you end up fighting sort of like more than one or, or like more than one enemy, basically, you're screwed. There are these really, really difficult bosses so this game is like, uh, I don't know, it's taking up a lot of my time. It's very frustrating. It's like the perfect way to, I don't know, pass the time when you're stuck indoors because it's so difficult that you find yourself like looking up. I mean, this is pathetic. I can't believe I'm saying this on a, on a free episode of all things, but it's so difficult that you find yourself looking up videos of people explaining like the sword techniques and how to master them and stuff. So, um, uh, I'm doing that as well as all the, uh, other, uh, very cool highbrow stuff that I do to pass the time. I gotta say, that's not my idea of a good time. I don't like video games that are hard. Uh, I used to really like playing uh, Batman Returns for Super Nintendo, where you were Batman and you just went in one direction and <laughs> you punched the circus clown villains, and then and then once you'd punched all the villains in that in that square, you then were able to move a little bit to the right and go to the next square. So was and, this? I don't remember Batman Returns. Was this like a side-scrolling game? That's right. A, a spinoff of the the smash hit Tim Burton film. Uh, you know, when I was a kid, I used to love video games that were, you know, based on movies. Uh, I remember I played uh, Beethoven's Second, the video game where you were the dog and you ran along and picked up dog treats. There was a Wayne's World video game. Where oh, you were Wayne. I, I remember the Wayne's World video game. You know what I love about movie spinoff video games was that they were so phoned in a lot of the time that there really was no attempt to really make them work like as an extension of the movie at all. So in the Wayne's World one, it's like, yeah, it's a side scroller where... There's like bouncing music notes and giant guitars in the background and like the bouncing music notes 
are sort of like the the Koopas or whatever, like a la yeah. Mario that you I have mean, to jump on. They were all the exact same game. It was just, you know, you plug in Mike Myers where you might have plugged in Batman at one point, and then you plug in <laughs> like a guitar where you might have plugged in a batarang. Yeah, that one was uh that one was really shit. Uh I was revisiting a while ago a Toy Story one that I really liked where uh, like revisiting, I mean, I watched a video on YouTube, not that I played this. I want to make that clear. I think I played that one when I was a kid too. Yeah. Right. So, you know, there's kind of, again, these tenuous attempts to turn various things from the game into like levels, except it's never like a direct translation. It's more like a sort of spiritual homage. So the part at the end of Toy Story where like Woody and Buzz are trying to catch up with the, the truck, the moving truck where Buzz Lightyear has the rocket or whatever, and they're on, like, the little RC car. It's like, you do that, except now it's, like, an obstacle course, and you have to, like, dodge all these enemies and, like, do shit like that. Or uh, there's, like, levels, or at least one level, I seem to recall, in Andy's room, Mm. uh, except for some reason there are, like, enemies in Andy's room. Like, it's, like, hostile. I mean, I haven't played this game for more than 20 years, so maybe I'm misremembering, but... Yeah, uh, the, I remember the level in uh, in Sid's room used to, like, scare the bejesus out of me. All the memories are flowing back now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and of course, the most famous bad game of all time was based on a movie. I'm speaking, of course, of the E.T., the extraterrestrial game. Uh, this might be getting into hack territory. Uh, I'm sure everyone's heard of this, but... If, you know, you're in the kind of 5% of listeners who hasn't heard of the E.T. game, it is a genuinely funny thing to investigate. There are like whole like YouTube documentaries and stuff where people will chronicle this for you. Uh, Basically, in the early 1980s, I believe, you know, Atari was trying to cash in on E.T., but they didn't give the developers sufficient time to, you know, actually design and and kind of build the game. And so I think it was designed, like, I want to say the span of a few weeks rushed out for i think it was the christmas market corrections welcome by the way please dm will with all your corrections um (laughs) rushed out for the christmas market and you know they were anticipating that it was gonna be a really hot item because of the movie so they made way too many cartridges to say this game is bad i mean we talked about the wayne's world game toy story game i mean this this game was like in a whole other level of of dog shit like a whole other this was the god tier of video game dog shit you know et is like this little like he he he's maybe like five or six pixels like you move him around the screen there are sort of random holes that you can fall into um, I mean, it's Atari, so it's not the most, like, graphically uh, exciting system. But even with the sort of limited tools available on the Atari, this is, like, a, a horrendous, uh, horrendous game. E.T. has a thing where you can, like, extend his neck or something. They're, like, these, yeah, these holes you fall into, and they're, like, really hard to get out of. Like, watch a couple watch a couple uh, uh, clips from this game, and you'll see what I mean. Anyway, uh, so few copies of this game sold that I think there's, like, a landfill site somewhere in like you know i don't know new mexico or something it's a famous site like i think people actually go visit it like ironically (laughs) and this game was so unsuccessful that it contributed to a significant like near collapse in the entire video game like home video game market or something at the time before we leave the topic of video games based on movies i just want to put on the record 
the Blues Brothers 2000 video game, which <laughs> uh, I don't know if you remember the movie Blues Brothers 2000, which was the Blues Brothers movie that had Dan Aykroyd and not John Belushi because he was dead. <laughs> but it came out in, I think, January or February 1998. And there was a Nintendo 64 tie-in game, which is already hilarious because like what what kid in 1998 would have wanted to play a Blues Brothers video game? But it was delayed for so long that it actually came out in the year 2000, <laughs> a full a full like two and a half years after the movie just came and went without anybody seeing it. Man, I never I never played that one. How does that work? Like you, you have to like uh, do a guitar battle against Eric Clapton or whatever. Like what's yeah. the how do you make a mo- like a game out of Blues Brothers 2000? I think it was basically along those lines. I think it was like the Wayne's World game. You know, you pick up saxophones and you pick up <laughs> guitars and, you know, you, I think they're probably car chases. I don't know. The saxophones give you health points or something. It's like you start at the game with like a, I don't know, a music note bar, which is like your vitality or something. And if it you know drops below a certain point, you die, but you can replenish it with saxophones. Probably mm-hmm. some shit like that. The one I wanted to mention was um, the we've tapped a rich vein of material here. So you, you've all you've all seen everyone's seen every single person listening has definitely seen the Paul McCartney film. Give my regards to Broad Street, which we will have to do an episode on sometime because it is an incredible piece of sort of like, I don't know, it is an incredible sort of failed blockbuster. Uh, it's definitely a movie that was trying to be something other than what it was. Uh, you and I watched that movie, I think, like 10 years ago. It's it's from the 80s, and it is the Paul McCartney movie. And we put it on thinking, well, this has a terrible reputation, but like... How bad can it be? And boy, is it ever bad. Now, Paul knows how to direct a musical sequence, and those are pretty good. Like they're Actually, these... I, I disagree. I remember that those musical sequences were very, like, static. Do you remember the <laughs> Eleanor Rigby <laughs> sequence? I, I don't. it was but... like a flashback? <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, there's, there's like, the movie is kind of so badly put together that the whole thing feels like a, a like, one giant, like, dream sequence. Oh, and wasn't the plot like like he had the master tapes of his new album and somebody stole them and he had to find them before midnight or something? Yeah, it's like some gremlins steal it or something and he has to... It's, it's so hack. But my memory is that the musical sequences sort of work okay at least some of them are good and that you know well uh, i they, strongly they, disagree but well, go ahead. Uh, this is why we got to do an episode uh, <laughs> we got to do an episode on it you and i agree on most things but i can really see us coming to blows over this <laughs> anyway you've all you've all seen the movie i don't know why we're talking about it this is everyone's favorite movie but did you know that there is a video game tie-in to give my regards to broad street or this game as you driving around in like a little car or something while a sort of really shitty like midi version of band on the run plays and it just never stops so you're just like stuck with that melody until it drives you insane and you know similar to the movie like you know you're trying to get the master tapes except the challenges you know you have to get them before you go completely insane from you know hearing the midi version of band on the run like just the same 15 bars or whatever of the, the first part of the band on the run suite but, you know, before you go uh, crazy and, and smash your controller. So here's what we do. We f- we finally start the official Michael and us Twitch stream. And all it is is just us playing uh, Give My Regards to Broad Street for, like, original Nintendo. Okay, you say this is a joke, but actually, what if we, what if we started doing some stuff on Twitch? We've had some uh, requests to do video game stuff. 
I've been playing this game, like my girlfriend and I were playing this game called Overcooked, which is like a sort of puzzle game. I don't know. I think it'd be funny if uh, you and I played it and I just got mad at you as you tried to like master it while like the recipes burnt. Like, oh, yeah, that sounds really fun. I would love that. Well, I mean, it wouldn't be fun for you, but I think uh, I think the listeners might like it. I don't know. We could play Mario Kart or something. I can play Mario Kart. I can play GoldenEye64. There are a few things I can play. How about you handle Twitch? I'll start the OnlyFans account. (laughs) Do you have the papers? Not yet. The Times says 7,000 pages detailing how the White House has been lying about the Vietnam War. You're talking about exposing years of government secrets. Is that legal? What is it you think we do here for a living, kid? Okay, people are concerned about having a woman in charge of the paper. That she doesn't have the resolve to make the tough choices. Thank you, Arthur, for your frankness. If you publish, we'll be at the Supreme Court next week. Meaning... Well, we could all go to prison. Nixon will muster the full power of the presidency, and if there's a way to destroy you, by God, he'll find it. I'm asking your advice, Bob, not your permission. She can't do this. The legacy of the company is at stake. If we don't publish, we will lose. The country will lose. What are you going to do, Mrs. Graham? The Post, ready PG-13. Well, folks, uh, I guess we're going to go in guns blazing with this one. We finally watched The Post this week. Probably nothing has been more inevitable. Uh, This movie is so primed for the Michael and Us treatment that it took us this long to get round to it. And uh, yeah, boy, it it certainly didn't disappoint. It kind of had every uh, cliche I was expecting it to and uh, and a few more besides. What did you think, Will? I'm coming in hot with the worst opinion I've ever had on this podcast, which is that I had a pretty good time watching this movie. Are you serious? First of all, that doesn't necessarily mean I uh, approve of it or respect the function that it's serving. Oh, Oh, okay, okay, okay. But on just on an aesthetic level... I found this movie such an absolute chore to sit through. I was getting so bored watching this movie that I was like getting up and like going to do something else for 20 minutes and coming back. I was like having to do that thing where you like, you're just like fighting, like you're like beads of sweat dripping down your like forehead. You're like temples throbbing as like your hand trembles and you try to reach for your phone and you're just like, no, I'm working now. Like you liked this movie? That's funny because I didn't have that experience. I didn't I didn't like it. I wouldn't say I liked it, but it's I was watching it thinking, you know, Spielberg's gifts haven't entirely departed him. You know, he knows how to stage a scene. Ugh. Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep, you know, they're canned ham, but uh, sometimes I kind of like the flavor of that ham. By the way, that's the nicest thing I'm going to say about this movie because like I don't I don't approve of this movie. I don't respect it. It's just more that like Spielberg, you know, he's 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 built to please. You know, when I when I see his camera roving around that Washington Post newsroom, it's like, yeah, this guy this guy knows how to stage a scene. Will's just trying to make up some ground because we had a listener who uh actually unsubscribed from our Patreon because of Will's uh anti Tom Hanks posturing. It's really funny. Like, I think it's on one of the uh, one of the podcast apps, like in the reviews, there's like a it's maybe like a two or a three star review. And it's like, yeah, I listened for a long time, but, uh, <laughs> like, you know, respectfully unsubscribed after with all due respect, Tom Hanks, you know, has not gentrified, does not exist to gentrify the landscape of Americana. Thank you very much. Good day. Sir. I just think we've got to separate the artist from the art, you know, <laughs> Roman Polanski, Woody Allen, Tom Hanks. You know, these are terrible men who sometimes do good work. Wow, that's that is some that is some hot shit. 
Well, I will just say on an aesthetic level that I found this film, like everything looks like this now. Everything looks like prestige TV. Everything is sort of like period. And it's like, oh, hey, we're in the 1970s. And yeah, look at these period costumes. And like, you know, look at all, look at these rooms full of all the men. And uh, this is how they did the news. And this is how they, this is how they were doing the politics back in the day. And uh, this is this is how they did the law. It's just and it's just everything. Everything looks like this is just beating us over the head with like, I don't know, the, the periodness of it all. It looks like every single show on Netflix. It looks like it has this like paste over the screen, like like it's so color corrected to hell. Yeah, right. It's like it's like there's a Snapchat filter that just makes everything sort of like vaguely period and yeah everything is like the same like why is it always this color palette also everything in the movie feels like you know a, a sort of nudge nudge like hey we're giving it we, we went over to the like props department and we we found um generic hippies protesting the <laughs> yeah. vietnam war and singing like hard rain's gonna fall in close harmony uh we got a guy giving the like you got to throw your body into the gears, you know, onto the gears of the machine speech, except this isn't where the speech happened, I don't think. Or and it's also like he's not giving the speech properly. Like this is not what the speech looked like. You can you can look it up online. He's like promptly dragged away. So it's like they're sort of giving you that because it's all pastiche now. It's like, uh -huh. hey, remember this? Remember this thing? Remember this thing? Remember this thing? The whole movie is like a museum to like. And this is where... You know, people say, you know, you can separate aesthetics from ideology. In this case, and I think in a lot of cases, I disagree. Because the, the whole movie is like one giant, like, museum piece to like a set of sort of like bit, bits of Americana that it's cynically kind of monetizing, you know, in the form of like boomer nostalgia. Do you remember our conversation? Um, I think this was on a Patreon app about like how the stands at like a, a drugstore that have magazines on it or like a grocery store, it's always just the same five or six things. Like it's either like 90s stuff or it's like stuff from the you know 60s and, and 70s. It's like, or just like, it's always a, the same sort of set of like five or 10 bits of culture. It's like, how is it always the 50th anniversary how is every day the 50th anniversary of when the Beatles went on Ed Sullivan like <laughs> yes. how is every every day the anniversary of when Goldfinger came out like how how much more can we really learn about the death of Princess Diana or <laughs> or like the new shred of evidence in the John Benet Ramsey case or the OJ trial or whatever it's always just those same things and I felt like this movie was just like one giant multi-million dollar version of that boy you better get used to it because the boomers are the same age that the greatest generation was 30 years ago and and we know how much greater greatest generation like nostalgia porn there was throughout the 90s um you know spielberg is somebody who i feel like i have less and less use for as i get older uh, obviously he's a great filmmaker in many ways I don't think there's anybody who's had a better command of the technical side of the medium, you know, the, the nuts and bolts stuff. But he's the least interesting guy to come out of that, like the new American auteurs yeah. of the 1970s, right? Like if you compare his work to like Francis Ford Coppola or Martin Scorsese or any of them, I mean, there's a lot less going on. I mean, it's like him and George Lucas are the two guys that sort of came out of that and maybe made like one or two interesting movies. I mean, everyone says American Graffiti is good. I'm sure I'm sure it's fine. I've never seen it. Maybe it's even good. Spielberg has definitely made some interesting movies, certainly a lot of competent movies. A lot of movies that hit the right buttons. Absolutely. Like his greatest talent was in 
making things like Raiders of the Lost Ark. These things that just like hit the the sweet spot for like how you could use the landscape of, of like the new new American cinema in the 70s and 80s and sort of bring a sort of like a tourist touch to the medium of blockbusters. But I have the same arc that that you do and that I get I'm less and less interested in him as the years go by, and I think I enjoy his films less and less. And I get closer and closer, you know, to feeling how you do about sort of Tom Hanks's mm-hmm. role, you know, in Hollywood, which is that he's just this sort of like, this guy who is slowly harvesting all of Americana and sort of uh, attaching himself to it, such that he is is giving us, he's rendering kind of the official like Time Magazine account of it. Yeah, I'm very skeptical of somebody like Spielberg who makes it his project to become the official American filmmaker. I think it's typical of Spielberg that he's always looking at world historic tragedies and diseased institutions and trying to find the silver lining to them. Like Schindler's List is a good and honorable movie in many ways, but it's like Stanley Kubrick said about it. The Holocaust is this great moral failure, and Spielberg makes the movie about the success that was within it. He's made several movies about slavery, uh, two of which, Amistad and Lincoln, are about the white people who abolished it. And the second one, Lincoln, is explicitly about how the system can right itself. Beyond that, so many of his other movies are about, you know, protect the family unit, protect suburbia at all costs. It's not a vision I love. It's an interesting thesis on Spielberg because, you know, as as you were talking just now, I was thinking about how perfectly that project maps on to sort of the the liberal narrative of, of America, where it's like, it may not be perfect, but the march of progress is sort of linear and, and it's, you know, we're always... We're always forward marching. Now, Now I think that's a good thesis on Spielberg and probably broadly true. Although this film may, may seem to be in contradiction to it. Ultimately, though, I think that uh, this film is part of the same uh, tradition. You know, this is a movie about, uh, you know, obviously the Pentagon Papers. I'm sure, you know, most people who are listening are kind of broadly familiar with it, even if they haven't seen it. And even though it's set in the early 1970s, it is very much a film for the Trump era, right? It was, I think, rushed into production pretty much around the time of Trump's inauguration. It came out within a year of his inauguration. It was a response to him. So it is the, you know, it is peak liberal moral panics of 2017 about the press and the sanctity of the Republic and all that. Um, you know, it's peak sort of like the the thickets of Russiagate. That's kind of the, uh, I don't know, some what diseased cultural milieu that birthed it into being and even though it's a film of you know that's that's set in the early 1970s and is about you know something else at least topically speaking it is a you know forward march of progress theme i mean we're going to spoil the ending here but but i mean this is a film fundamentally about how even though you know america may undergo hardship and these times of trial that you know test the soul of the republic the institutions of american democracy are fundamentally sound and they will rescue us in these times of trial um which very much was I know 2017 feels like a decade ago. I mean, that is so many posts ago. But (laughs) that was very much the kind of feeling in 2017. It's still very much a a theme that is present, I think, in the liberal reaction to Trump. It became the dominant theme of the Democratic primaries this year, despite sort of the left's attempts to, you know, really make the election about something else. Uh, I mean, Joe Biden is the perfect you know, figure. He's the perfect manifestation of this sentiment. 
fundamentally things were okay before 2016. And Donald Trump, the biggest problem with him is that he is compromising these institutions or he is disrespecting these institutions that are fundamentally sound. So if we can just restore the equilibrium, things will be fine. And don't worry, the courts are here to protect us. The press is here to protect us. And also the elites are here to protect us. We can we can defer to them. Uh, that is what this movie is fundamentally arguing. The movie is arguing this, but it also kind of contradicts itself. Uh, I'll just outline that the two major characters of the film are Catherine Graham, a newspaper heiress played by Meryl Streep, who at the time this movie is set, I think it's 1971, finds herself the publisher of the Washington Post. There's also Ben Bradley, uh, played by Tom Hanks, playing Jason Robards. Uh, He's the editor-in-chief of the scrappy little newspaper, you know, always in the shadow of the New York Times. Daniel Ellsberg is a much more minor character. And the movie is about the Times and the Post, uh, but particularly the, the Post, sort of racing against each other testing the limits of what the law will allow and and just finally throwing all caution into the wind and publishing the documents. The thing that I think is interesting about this movie is that it depicts journalism as being entirely at the whim of one powerful and well-connected publisher's mood that day. There comes a big climactic scene where Catherine Graham, who is depicted in the film as being a close family friend of Robert McNamara, and the media in this movie is depicted as being very incestuous with the Washington, D.C. political elite. You know, she's feeling pressure uh, both personally from McNamara and professionally because she's going to launch the newspaper on the New York Stock Exchange and the newspaper is in a precarious financial position already. She's surrounded by lawyers and editors who are pushing her in every direction. Whether or not to publish this, you may go to jail. The paper may go under. And who are who are all who are all men? Importantly, yes. Uh, the movie does have a sort of a liberal feminist. Well, it's uh, it's very it's very like you know Hillary Clinton feminism you know circa you know 2016 where Meryl Streep plays this you know incredibly privileged wealthy woman who has literally inherited the Washington Post from her husband it is like a family property and so her like her prime consideration is thinking about the honor like how do i how do i honor this institution so i can pass it on to my children did you notice by the way that at the supreme court scene at the end when Meryl Streep goes in, she stands in line briefly behind a Hillary Clinton lookalike. I did not see that. <laughs> but there's also the moment there where a young woman who I guess is a legal aide working for the uh, the, the opposing team comes up to her and is like, yeah, you know, I hope you guys win. But I, I you know, I could never say that because, um, you know, I'd get fired. Um, this is an example of uh, what I was talking about before. But how the, you know, the film is constantly reaching for these like these very generic and incredibly heavy handed signifiers to to let us know the time we're in. So it can't just let us sit with the fact that, you know, Meryl Streep is often the only woman in a lot of these rooms. It has to remind us over and over again of the backward views that existed in this largely sort of pre-second wave feminist society. There's even a there's a scene at the end, I don't know if you noticed this, or like a little moment where after they've published um, and, you know, her decision to publish is basically what, you know, that's what earns her the respect to like, a guy in the newsroom bumps into her and he goes, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. And it's like she's, you know, she's finally been noticed and, of course, respected as the uh, as the millionaire heiress that uh, <laughs> that she always was. But yeah, ultimately, her decision to publish is just a flip of the coin. I mean, if this is actually the decision making process and these people, as depicted in this movie, are the people making the decisions, 
I mean, no wonder basically the American media class had exactly two moments of triumph in the last 50 years, <laughs> this and Watergate. And then after that, it was just, you know, 45 years of uh, not publishing certain unflattering stories about the Iraq war because it would poison. Well, forget not not publishing it. I mean, like literally leading the manipulation of public right. opinion and acting as like an arm of the state, essentially, you know, basically turning I mean, this was, I suppose, more broadcast media, but like turning the Gulf War into this like infotainment that Americans could like sit on their couch and and watch while they heard dispatches from embedded journalists in the field who were literally just repeating things that they got from the Pentagon or sometimes just cutting out the middleman and just having people from the Pentagon and the State Department like tell them exactly what was going on. I mean, this movie, The Post, has this unbelievably corny epilogue where it's Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks just like in the printing room looking at the (laughs) press and being like, you know, sometimes we do good work after all. And, uh, you know, it's a good thing we're there to hold power to account or whatever it is they say. But ultimately, this is a movie about... I don't even know if Spielberg understands it, but it's a movie about how they are the exception to the rule about how the whole system is built to prevent things like this from happening. Yeah, I mean, and uh, and right, who, who owns the Washington Post now again? Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, I, the I, name I've escapes forgotten. me, yeah. Yeah. The Founding Fathers gave the free press the protection it must have to fulfill its essential role in our democracy. The press was to serve the governed, not the governors. The richest person to ever exist. Anyway, good. thank God for the fourth estate. Yeah, actually, that scene you're describing brings to mind something else that I absolutely hated about this movie, which is the sort of like, I don't know, PMC, like J-school porn oh, yeah. aspect of it, which, you know, uh, for those that don't know, Will and I met over 10 years ago while working at a student newspaper, the Varsity at U of T. And I don't know, we've talked before on the show about how much we kind of dislike the, I mean, Will actually went to J school. I did not, but I think both of us, it's safe to say, dislike the, uh, I don't know, the sort of performative identity of being a journalist that some people do. Journalism in and of itself as an identity. Yeah, exactly. Where it's just celebrated as this sort of inherently noble thing. I mean, of course, it can be a noble thing. Of course, investigative journalism and matters. But, you know, especially when we're talking about these big newspapers and sort of the American media as a whole, yeah, often that kind of thing is the exception to the rule. And characters like the ones in the film, you know, these kind of wealthy publishers are actually standing in the way of all that. But that doesn't matter if you're the kind of person who watches this film and you're just staring at all the like shots of like the montages of like the papers coming hot off the presses and uh Meryl Streep saying things like I buried the lead in colloquial speech and you're like ah, I know what that means I know what that means that's a journalism expression or yeah them strolling through like the printing facility and saying you know gosh darn it uh so you know at the end of the day uh what we do matters and it's always we must never forget uh Yeah, I find all that stuff pretty insufferable. All the shots of like typewriters and people having these kind of editorial meetings, like the Washington Post 
uh, newsroom is just depicted as having this one like giant editorial meeting, which like maybe is defensible on sort of dramatic grounds. I guess you kind of have to do that. But I mean, like, look, that's not what working at a newspaper is like. So much of what newspapers do is so much more like workmanlike than that. It's just reporting in a very matter of fact way on on things that are happening. Like a lot of it is very uh, is very boring. I don't know. Um, so I don't know when whenever it's depicted in this incredibly glamorous way, I find that maybe this is just a pet peeve of mine but i find that like inherently quite irritating before we leave this movie forever i want to read a little bit from an article posted by cnn on march 2nd 2017 so during the time when the post would have been in pre-production the headline is tom hanks gives white house press an espresso machine uh it says The White House press corps won't need to worry about staying caffeinated covering the new administration thanks to a new espresso machine gifted by actor Tom Hanks on Thursday. Hanks surprised the press corps for the third time in 13 years with an espresso machine and added a note encouraging the journalists to continue their work. (laughs) Keep up the good fight for the truth, justice, and the American way, Hanks wrote in a note accompanying the gift, which was delivered by mail. Especially the truth part. I mean, this man should be in jail. Spe- speaking of, of leads, uh, so what was the lead on that again? It was like, I'm just trying to imagine the thinking that went into that lead where it's like, hmm, okay, so Tom Hanks, press corps, coffee machine. It's like, all right, <clears throat> uh, uh, the press corps uh, won't have to worry about uh, staying <laughs> caffeinated. Yeah, it sounds like me writing at the Woolwich Observer. <laughs> Do you remember any of your leads from that? Like if like if you're writing about a like a minor hockey game or something? Well, I don't remember any of my leads, but but I will tell you about the experience of writing about minor hockey games. There was one year when the Elmira Sugar Kings, their top player uh, broke his leg and so he was out of the game for the second half of the year. And so they did really well the first half and they did very poorly the second half. And you wrote, uh, well, the Sugar Kings sure looked hobbled the other night. Well, it's hard to just write about them losing week after week. So what I figured out how to do was to do a good cop, bad cop thing on alternating weeks. So on one week, it might be like in what's becoming all too typical of the Elmira Sugar Kings. Uh, you know, they they found themselves on the losing on the losing side of, you know, and then the other week it would be. Though the Sugar Kings have lost the last three games, uh, head coach, what's his name, says it'll make them stronger for the playoffs. <laughs> your, your publisher was like, I have friends in high places. I got to get legal on this to make sure we can run. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, another another uh, related thing this film does, because there's just no subtlety to any of it, is gift us with wondrous lines that are seemingly put into the film so they can appear in the trailer. Luke, did you write something? Some of them down uh, I did yeah another one was uh, uh, the way they lied uh, you know to the public those days are over uh, or when they're talking about the war um, they knew they couldn't win but they still sent boys to die uh, that's another thing oh uh, speaking of which we would be remiss to not talk about the opening frames of the movie which look like you know uh, I don't know it looks like if if you and I wrote a parody of a movie <laughs> like this it's like just the most generic Vietnam War footage um it's like a- again the movie no subtlety so it's like oh yeah here's some Vietnam things the guys are getting they're getting camouflage paint put on their faces they're looking at their Vietnam era rifles and machine guns and guess what uh CCR is playing unbelievable Man, I love CCR, but it's really dispiriting when you see it like 
used in this way, just as sort of like code for like, ah, ah, we're in, we're in this era, we're in this era, remember? Did you like the cliffhanger ending uh, with the Watergate break-in? I mean, again, so hack. You know, you hear Richard Nixon and he's like, oh, God damn it, uh, well, make sure that the Washington, I can't do Richard Nixon, but he's basically saying, you know, n- no one from the Washington Post should ever be allowed in the, you know, White House again or whatever. And then there's like a phone call, just in case you don't know where things are headed next, just in case you need to be reminded where it's like, uh, you know, you hear like a, a security guard or something being like, I think where there's been a break in at Watergate and then credits roll. I don't know. It would be nice if one was going to make a film like this to just not treat everyone in the audience as an like an idiot. But I guess, I don't know, I guess this kind of like period porn is what people are, are looking for and is kind of what they're hungry for. I mean, I guess the, the kind of message that's being sent to the collective unconscious by way of a movie like this is, well, you know, in the past we've known, we've known trouble and strife, but, uh, by golly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, like Nixon. Yeah. By golly, by gosh, by gum, things are going to be okay. And, uh, then yeah, the Nixon sort of moment at the end is sort of like saying, uh, don't worry, uh, Rachel Maddow is going to find the smoking gun in Trump's tax returns that links him to the Kremlin. Every Republican in the House and Senate is going to vote patriotically to impeach uh, the president, which is which, as we all know, uh, happened shortly after this movie came out. So just I mean, just one more comment on the depiction of the war. I mean, it is very much like the hawks and doves depiction of the war, which was sort of how a lot of mainstream discourse by the early 1970s, you know, in the American press sort of played out. So this is kind of a the, the Chomskyan formulation that's used in, you know, the famous study Manufacturing Consent, right, which is when the Vietnam War was talked about in the mainstream, the framing was, uh, it's a debate between hawks and doves. So the hawks are the ones who are like, God damn it, we have to win at all costs. Nothing will do except victory. And the doves are the ones who are saying, well, uh, you know, it's time to bring the boys home. You know, we tried our darndest, but uh, if the war is unwinnable, well, you know, we, we got to come back. And that is kind of largely, that is largely kind of how the, the war is depicted in the film. I mean, there are, there is some reference to uh, some of the sketchier things the United States is doing, like rigging elections in Southeast Asia and things like that. But basically, it is kind of the standard, like, Time magazine framing, where the problem was not so much that the war was this murderous enterprise that was needlessly killing people on the other side of the world and also sending tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of, you know, American young men into this this horror, all in the name of this, uh, this bogus anti-communist crusade. That was not the problem. The problem was that the uh, the American public wasn't being uh, served the truth about the war. And, you know, if they had been, they would have known that it was unwinnable and they and the boys would have been out of there earlier. I mean, that is kind of essentially what the, the stakes are in this movie. Um, and so, of course, uh, of course, that bugged me, too. It's like even removed decades from something from a calamity uh, like the Vietnam War. Hollywood still can't just tell the truth about it. There still has to be this kind of same framing. In the in the officially sanctioned liberal imagination, this is still how this event is remembered. And if it's remembered that way, why would anybody ever learn from it? You know, fast forward to Iraq, and that's exactly the framing that was used in 2003 and even kind of immediately after. I mean, remember in the 2004 presidential election, for example, what like John Kerry's line on the war was, which was that like the president was not doing it in a competent way. And he would have taken on Saddam Hussein, but he would have built the the international coalition that would have allowed the war to be won quicker and et cetera, et cetera. And I guess we haven't done a lot of Iraq movies for the podcast, but... 
I think a lot of the films that were made in the ensuing years kind of have the same take. And probably three decades from now, when... uh, When Spielberg gets around to making his Iraq War movie. Yeah, it'll just be exactly the same thing. Tom Hanks as General Petraeus. (laughs) So there are probably individual, you know, scenes and moments from this movie that we haven't talked about. But I think everybody basically gets the idea. I mean, uh, we've, we've done a lot of politics, what a concept films. This is sort of the news what a concept great movie entertaining from beginning to end you know the master storyteller the dream weaver spielberg uh, <laughs> has done it again god bless the news uh the courts will save us the elites will save us hashtag impeach trump hashtag resist i've been norman mallard maxwell tallard i've been john o'hara mcnamara I've been rolling stone and beetles till I'm blind. I've been iron randed, nearly branded, a communist, cause I'm left-handed. That's the hand to use. Well, never mind. So uh, movie theaters are apparently going to open either this week or maybe next week. They don't have any movies to play. Uh, little little John Stewart movie called Irresistible. Oh yeah, uh, that's folks, foreshadowing. Folks can look forward to our take on that. Uh, it was really good, by the way. <laughs> but there are no movies for these theaters to show, so I think most of them are just showing like you know old Batman movies or old Marvel movies and stuff until the new Christopher Nolan joint finally comes out. Wait, so you say there are no new movies, but I'm a little confused, and I'm I'm, I'm not being ironic here. I genuinely don't know. So what about all the movies that were going to come out and couldn't? Isn't there going to be a giant bottleneck? Like, how are film releases going to work over the next six months to two years? Man, I don't know. I mean, a lot of them have been delayed. The new Fast and Furious was delayed by a full year. The new James Bond movie is supposed to come out in November. We're never going to get Hobbs and Shaw 2, The Reckoning. (laughs) Top Gun 2 was delayed until Christmas. Um, I mean, I don't know. Who knows if they'll even come out then. There are a lot of movies that are just going straight to video on demand. And I think there are some companies that are trying to test the waters and be like, okay, can can we do without theatrical exhibition? Can we cut out the middleman and you know, not have to deal with movie theaters and just go straight to people's TV. So that's something that's clearly being experimented on. I, I gotta say, I, I watched the new Spike Lee movie on Netflix a week or two ago, and I thought it was just a really bad experience. Uh, not because the movie was bad, but because it made me realize like how much seeing a new movie in a theater was sort of part of the experience for me. There was something about going to see a movie in its moment and like having to having to make it an event and having to see it with all these other strangers who wanted to also see it in its moment and seeing it in a theater where the movie itself is the environment. There's no distraction and you've got it. You've got to live in this thing and feel the urgency of this thing when it's new. So I feel a little bit disconnected from contemporary movies now, the ones that are going to VOD, because when it's on VOD, I mean, the new Spike Lee movie may as well be the old Spike Lee movie, you know? It's all the same when it's when it's on this big context-free streaming soup. Yeah, just with all the, uh, I don't know, all the straight-to-DVD, like, or with all the straight-to-Netflix schlock, like, whatever the, like, latest, like, Steven Seagal sniper <laughs> movie is, or or whatever you see when you, like, search for a movie. Like, you know, when, when you search something on Netflix, that's, like, the one thing that might be on Netflix you actually mm-hmm. want to watch, and it's, like, 
Well, no, uh, we don't have John Wick, but uh, have yeah. you uh, have you thought about watching this uh, Steven Seagal movie that was made in like uh, Outer Mongolia or something? And you know, it's funny when you go on the Netflix like trending now page, you'll see the Spike Lee movie, The Five Bloods. It might be there. And, you know, Star Trek, old episodes of Star Trek will be there. And like... Kate Fear is there and The Great Dictator is there. Like these are all movies that I've seen on yeah. the trending now thing and it's like wow, all of these things are just like just part of the same present right now. It's like there's no kind of distinguishing between something that is like coming out right now and it's of its moment right now and all these other things. I mean there there are benefits of it. Like there's a reason that something like the movie Contagion for example is rising from the dead right now because suddenly these streaming technologies have allowed it to have a new moment. Well, uh, there's something else at work here. I mean, I agree with you about the experience of watching things in a theater. I mean, I saw The Lighthouse recently uh, at home, which I missed in the theater. Uh, I know this was a movie you said you you respected, but you found it a little bit of a difficult sit. Did you see it in a theater? I did see it in a theater, yeah. And I'm glad I did, by the way. See, I, I think that if I'd have seen it in a theater, I mean, I, I'm not going to say I didn't enjoy it. I actually, I thought it was great. But I do think the main thing it was doing, which is kind of trying to drive you crazy along with Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson, it's harder to, you know, experience that effect when you're sitting at home um, and you can kind of like get up and, you know, mm -hmm. walk around or, or whatever when there are distractions. I think it would work best, you know, in a kind of immersive way. But I think there's something else at work here, which you just brought to mind. I mean, you talked about Star Trek being on the list of trending things. And I've said, you know, I've talked before on the pod about how if you could have told me at age 11 that every Star Trek episode like Deep Space Nine, The Next Generation, the original series, Voyager, you know, even Enterprise, hell, it's all there. You can watch it whenever you want. And believe me, I do. I mean, I wouldn't have believed it. That would have been incredible. But I mean, I, I will say it really meant something to me when I was a kid growing up in rural Ontario. And there were like three episodes tops I could watch a week. And I had to go at a specific time and it would be an event. And I didn't have any say in like which episode it was. And, you know, you could watch them on demand. Like if you wanted to go and spend like, you know, 30 bucks on like a single VHS tape that might have three episodes that you'd watch over and over again. Or like, like I, I used to buy blank videotapes and then uh, record like they had marathons on that short lived network TNN where they just had basically pro wrestling and Star Trek The Next Generation for some reason. <laughs> I would just record them. And, like, I would have to record the ads, obviously. And, like, the ads would sort of become a part of the experience. Um, and yeah. so, like, I was used to getting my shot of Captain Picard and Commander Riker with, like, these weird promos that, like, Dwayne The Rock Johnson would do uh, in between for, like, the other stuff on this stupid network. Um, oh, the other thing that network had was Slam Ball, which, do you remember Slam Ball? No, I don't. <laughs> it was, like, something that this network was trying to turn into the next big thing. Uh, and it was just basketball with trampolines at the end of each. Oh, uh, I do remember this. Yes. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'm not surprised that failed to take off as kind of the next great like grassroots sport. It'd be pretty hard to practice that. Um, I'm more of a basketball man myself. <laughs> But anyway, all, all of this is to say, you know, I would take these tapes and I would put a little label on them and then I would write like the names of the episodes on them and I would just watch them over and over and over again. The one other way you could watch them was you would go to like the library 
this was uh, in Stratford, Ontario. They had like three VHS tapes of episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation. So I watched the episode The Naked Now, which is only the second episode of the series. It's based on a similarly titled episode the original series, which is very, very bad. Both are very, very bad. The plot is something like there is some kind of, I don't know, contagion or something that makes them all kind of act as if they're drunk and then they all get horny for each other. And that's <laughs> the plot. Very, very, very bad. But I watched that so many times because there was nothing else uh, I could do. And I had to enjoy it, uh, even though it was a bad episode. I was like that with Mystery Science Theater, where, you know, I would I would save my allowance for a few weeks and I would buy like... Manos the Hands of Fate on VHS and like like that was my episode for for that two months so I would you know watch it over and over again and remember the commentary yeah and I mean I you know I guess it feels so futile and and I don't know retrograde to feel nostalgic about I mean I'm not nostalgic for it in the sense that I'm not I'm not I'm not demanding like bring it back. Netflix is corrupting us, you know. What I what I am nostalgic for is the appreciation I have yeah. for those things because of their scarcity. Absolutely. Like I don't have any of those tapes anymore of like Star Trek the Next Generation things that I recorded or various other treks that I that I ripped from the TV. But those were like those were like incredible objects. Like those were like authentically mine and like I made them so I could enjoy this thing that I that I liked because it was almost impossible to watch. Like my dad had cable for, I think only a few months when he bought this new house and it was like the, the previous uh, owners hadn't disconnected the cable. But then besides that, like I had an antenna at my mom's house that just had like three channels. And I think it was city TV would play like, like one episode. And now you can just like, you can just get all that stuff when you want. And it's all part of the soup, you know, just like you can play all of your favorite movie tie in video games you know you can watch clips of them on the internet it's all it's all just right there everything is just one giant big museum like we're living in the uh the first few minutes of children of men or the first few minutes of uh the post 